For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 708 on CJD. Welcome to today's Entrepreneur, presented by Fuller Landau, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Fuller Landau's Josh Miller. How are you, Josh? I'm excellent, Dan. Great. Uh, now we have a special show, of course, as we do every week, but uh, this week it's extra special because we're going to be rejuvenated uh, with Roger Southern from Jouviance. Roger, how are you? I'm also excellent, thank you. Great. And as you're mentioning, Josh, Roger is, uh, looks a lot younger than he is. Well, you know, with the product that they, <laughs> that they created and that they distribute, it's skincare products uh, amongst, among, amongst many other things and absolutely makes people look a lot younger, as you can tell on radio. For sure. <laughs> so, Roger, welcome. And, uh, and Dan, this week's story is, is about really true Quebec entrepreneur. We started here, they, you, you know, it's local people that, they, that they've engaged in their, uh, in their product and their service. It's local people that promote it. It's really something that hits very close to home. And I think just to understand a little bit better, uh, Raj, what Juviance and the company that created, what does it do today? Today in terms of uh, helping people? Today, in terms of what does the company uh, produce or right. service or distribute? Perfect. So we're actually in what they call the dermal, what we call the dermal cosmetics section of, of cosmetics. So you have lower end products, more mass kind of products, which are a little, little uh, less expensive. You have the high end beauty products, the kind that we see quite often in the large department stores. And then in that slice in the middle, we have what we call dermal cosmetics, and that's where we are. So we sell in essentially all of the pharmacies here in Quebec. Um, and, and across the country, we sell it in, in shoppers uh, for, for a national distribution. So we have about 11 SKUs, 11 products, and we're in that section, Dermal Cosmetics, in the pharmacies. Now, how did you get into this? And wh when, did, when did the company start uh, with, with this product and developing it? Well, it all started back in 2003, and I guess they always say there's a good story behind a good product. And ours, we have a kind of a cute little story. Uh, my wife, Nicole, was, um, was actually having dinner with uh, a friend of hers, Dr. Guy Sylvestre, and um, he was saying, you know, Nicole, I've given all of my great ideas to the big Durham companies, those international Durham companies, but nobody is really doing what I want to do, and I have some great ideas. And Nicole said, well, Guy, why don't you just, uh, you know, market your own line of products? He said, well, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to make the product. And she said, you know, Roger... Uh, being me, Roger uh, has had a lot of experience in, in labs. He's a chemist. And uh, I think he could probably help you out by putting you in touch with somebody who actually could put together what you envisage. And that's exactly what happened. So I had a meeting with, with Dr. Sylvester, and I said, tell me more about what you're really looking for. He told me the kind of ingredients he was looking for. And I said, well, I know somebody that can work with you to help you actually make some, some product. And his idea at that time was just to make a, make a small product and just give it to his other dermatologist friends. And um, over the course of uh, nine months, uh, what was an idea became a reality, and he came up with our first, uh, our first product. And we didn't know what to call it, of course, and we were sort of brainstorming, and uh, we had a lot of different names on the table, and finally somebody said, look, we, we want something that's youthful. And somebody said, well, Fontaine de Jouvence, you know, the, 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 uh, the story about the, the eternal spring of, of youth somewhere in Florida, we think. And, uh, and then we just sort of added, added, added a little bit of a French flavor to the end and made a juviance. And we said, yes, that's it. Let's go see if we've got it. Was it intimidating to go up against a lot of the, the big multinational pharmaceutical companies? I mean, you have big corporations who also have anti-aging products. Uh, how, did you, how did you position yourself against them? 
Well, back in 2003, we never even thought about that. Uh, it was just to help Dr. Sylvester get started. And as, and as I'll, we'll say later, later on through, through the show, it, what, what started off as a small success became a great success. It drove us. We weren't driving it. So today, if I was looking at it and saying, oh, my God, look at all those big guys out there, I'd, I'd be trembling and saying, I don't want to get into this. It's just too difficult. It's just too intimidating. At the time, it was right place, right time. Let's just see what's going to happen. Now, there must be a ton of regulations to follow when you're creating a product like this, a skin product, uh, a dermatology product. Is What was the background you had or what did you have to know or the steps you had to go through to make sure that your product was in truly, uh, I guess, in conforming with regulations? Well, um, my early part of my career, I was a chemist working on the bench at a little company called Sibagagi, which became Novartis, which has sort of all evaporated with all the mergers in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, but I knew then about uh, GMP, what we now call ISO, all the different regulations. So I knew that uh, the, the the group that I was putting Dr. Sylvester in contact with were manufacturing under those kind of guidelines. So then it was a question of making sure the active ingredients that we were choosing would be accepted by, by uh, Santé Canada, by Health Canada. And in Canada, there's very strict regulations about what you can buy on the market. So they have to be approved before you can go and buy these active ingredients. So when we went looking at uh, various suppliers, we knew that whatever they were offering had already met uh, the requirements for sale in Canada. Was it a long process? I mean, I, I guess it's one thing to have an idea to create uh, a, a great product, great skincare product, but did you go through a lot of iterations, a lot of trial and error? How long did it take before you actually perfected this product? Yeah, that's that really was the challenge because it's one thing to say, okay, I want to have this, these peptides, these active ingredients, but the issue is you want to have a product that, that is really differentiable, you can really differentiate, uh, with the consumer. And that is, uh, with, with cosmetics, how does it feel going on? What's that, what's that sensory f feeling? Is it, does it absorb well? Does it leave an oily feel? And that was really the challenge. To get the active ingredients that we wanted was one thing, but to get the other non-active ingredients, the right balance, the right mix, so that when you, when you looked at it, when you sniffed it, when you felt it, it was, it was good. And we were able to do that, but it, get to your point. I think I think we're up to 26, 20, 26 uh, trial formulations until we got the one that that felt right, and that's the one we we uh, then took into a clinical testing. Is it a constant evolution? Have you have you have, do you well, get to a point where you say this is it, or do you is it is this a product line that you that you really have to look at and say how does it get better? Well, the, the good thing is. Though that sensory feeling, we, we've now got a great a product that really feels great. I think our challenge as a, as a company that wants to make sure we're always delivering the best we can is to say, okay, is there something else we can add? Can we, can we reduce one active ingredient by a little bit and put something extra in there to really boost up what it's doing? And that's really the approach we've taken. What can we do to up the efficacy but not really change that, that winning formulation that we've got? And now that they have a product, it's how do we get it to the market? How do we get people to know it, to buy it, to latch on to it? And I'm interested to hear about that coming up after the break. More with Roger Southern of Jouviance in a second. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 718 on CJAD, inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar, along with Fuller Landau's Josh Miller, and our guest this evening, Roger Southern of Juviance. And Roger, we were, you know, you, you perfected this formula, you perfected the product, or you're on your way. Now you've got to get it out to market. You've got to get it out so that people know about Juviance, people know and start. So 
What's your first step? How do you bring it to market right away? Certainly with Dr. Sylvester, there might have been uh, an in with certain doctors, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit on how that process started. Sure. Well, in fact, uh, that once we had that, that winning formulation and we had the clinical studies that showed that it worked, that was the first question we asked ourselves. Well, okay, now, so what? We've got this product. What are we going to do? And that's where Nicole said, well, look, uh, uh, Nicole and I had both come from Pfizer, so we had a lot of experience with, uh, with various uh, types of physicians. And she had worked a little, quite a bit with dermatologists. So she said, well, look, I, I know most of the important dermatologists in Quebec, especially in Montreal. So look, I'll, I'll do this. It won't take me more than a couple of days a week because uh, we weren't planning too big. So she said, let's make a first, our first lab batch. So we made, I think, about 500 jars. <laughs> I have to laugh thinking back with such such a small beginning. So I think we made 500 jars uh, and uh, she... Homemade, she, right? Jars home, that you're sitting in your basement making well, no, and they labeling? Were, they, they, they were filled in a, in a, in a, in a special laboratory okay. that, that makes... So they were all done very pro professionally. Uh, but then we still had the 500 jars in our living room and we were put them, in, put them into boxes which we had... Nicole had designed this nice little design to go in the box. So she put them in the box and she said, okay, I'm off to visit Dr. This one and Dr. That one and this one in the plateau and this one in the south shore and off we go so uh, she went out and uh, of course she said look this is a product being developed by dr Sylvester. you know him he's well known here in quebec and um he thought that you would like this product and would you be interested in uh, in trying it of course that was the first part try it with a few of your patients if you like it i'll come on back and it just went over very well i think we had about 35 dermatologists in the area trying or using the product within about four months is Dr. Sylvester at this point still involved? I mean, he, he helped you create the product. Do you also rely on him for certain contacts in the industry? Well, he's still involved and he still gives us a lot of advice. So we use him as a, as a, contract, as a contract physician. So uh, he and I work on the new products. He and I work together on the kind of active ingredients we want. So he's still involved in the line. But as you may or may not know, in, in Quebec especially, uh, physicians are not allowed to support products. So they can't get out there and say, like they do on the US TV, I developed this product, it really works well, I get out there, you know, my name's on it. We can't do that here. There's a certain level of independence, I guess, that they have to maintain, a certain level of professionalism that, and impartiality that I'm sure they have to maintain. So how do you deal with that or how do you sell to them if they have to maintain that? It, it, it was a real challenge, and it's probably one of the reasons why we sell a little bit less these days in, in, in Quebec to, to, uh, to physicians and dermatologists. At the, at the time, back in uh, 2004, 2005, um, many derm dermatologists were selling product out of, their, out of their, their office, out of their clinics. And uh, the college knew about it, but it wasn't too severe. And then with our success and other, other uh, brands becoming successful, they really started to close that, that, that door. So, uh, so dermatologists today can sell product, but really out of a separate door. They can't do it out of their main, their main point of business. And with Dr. Sylvest, I mean, he's helping us as a consultant, which is great. That's his involvement. He doesn't have any ownership in the company. Uh, so we use him as a consultant. And he's happy to see the development that we're, that we're taking. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a win-win that way. At what point did you realize that you had to take it beyond the doors of the dermatologists? <laughs> well, it happened to us. We didn't have to do it to the product. What happened was one of, uh, one of uh, Dr. Sylvester's clients, uh, and I think I can say this because it's now known, was Dominic Bertrand, a well-known uh, model, a well-known personality here in Quebec. And uh, on her radio show at the time, 
She said, um, I have come across a miracle product. It's a fantastic product. Stay tuned. In other words, keep on listening to the radio station. And later on this, this afternoon, I'll tell you how to get hold of this product. And uh, so later on in the afternoon, she says, just call Juviance and call this number and ask for Nicole. And we were literally swamped for four to five weeks with phone calls. Uh, the first indication we had that there was a problem was when our mailbox suddenly got to full uh, in the middle of the afternoon. And uh, then when the word came back, we were actually on the road selling to some dermatologists. The word came back what was happening. We quickly had to enlist some help to uh, come and empty that mailbox. And it was just a, a tremendous, uh, tremendous period of time. And then it just built from there. Marketing efforts gone very well, and certainly after that, it became a lot more active, and you were taking it to the streets as well as as growing it uh, internally. And I look forward to hearing a little bit more about your marketing strategy and uh, the next great Quebec voice that kind of came your way. Indeed, we'll talk about celebrity endorsements and more on today's Entrepreneur with Roger Southern of Jouvence. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Welcome back to today's Entrepreneur. Our guest this evening, Roger Southern of Juviance. Uh, they make anti-age products. And Roger, in a, in a crowded marketplace, a lot of anti-age products out there. You know, you, you developed a, a niche product back in 2003 selling to dermatologists. How did you make the jump? From selling, uh, you know, in small offices to uh, to selling in big pharmacies, it's it's uh, probably a, a very difficult transition. It, it was difficult in terms of having to get the volumes up because it suddenly went from making uh, maybe at that point maybe five hundred to a thousand, then we jumped up to like three thousand. Uh, so was a, uh, that was a big challenge. We had to find another lab to help us out. But what really happened there is uh, I mentioned Dominic Bertrand that that beginning of the process of getting our name out. And uh, then we, we uh, realized that we couldn't ask the, the consumer to go to a derm office always to buy the product. So here was, you know, the phone calls now went, I've heard about your product, where do I get it? And we had a list of, well, essentially 35 derms. And you know, we're getting calls from Rwanda, so I don't know any derms up there. So it's becoming a bit of a challenge. So um, with some of my contacts in the business, I went to a large distributor, well-known distributor, McKesson, and I asked them if they would mind that we uh, gave them gave them a certain volume of product, and we'd try and put it in the behind the pharmacy, behind the counter, in some selected Jean Coutures, uh, because Jean Couture was beginning to get interested in the brand. And they agreed to do that. So we, we, we actually, uh, I think we gave them about 5,000 units. They took it on. And um, with some help from Jean Couture, we got it into about uh, maybe 25 or 30 pharmacies, mostly in the uh, metropolitan Montreal area. So we now had a place where people could go and get the product. So this was behind the counter? Right, behind the counter. So how did people know it was behind? How did people well, they know had, about it? They had to go and ask. Ah. That, that, from a marketing point of view, that was the issue. I've now got some distribution. How do I get, how do I get it out? What, what's my pull? I got, mm-hmm. I've got it there, but how do I get it out? Uh, so that, that was, that was the, the, the dilemma we were facing. Get the volume up, find another lab to help us out. And now how do we actually welcome, we've got a product here, how do we get people to know about it and come and get it? And, of course, you know, the differentiation, you know, what, what's the difference between the products? You have to educate people. So, so how did you do that? Did you have a marketing campaign? Did you use, to what point did McKesson help you out or Jean Coutu directly? Well, at, at that particular point, we, were, we, we, we had begun to really uh, synthesize what made us different. What made us different was, well, we were developed by a Quebec dermatologist, so the development by a derm is one, one important feature. We had what we called a three-in-one three in product. So we're saying you no longer have to go out and buy 
a day cream, a night cream, a product for your eyes, a product for your face. We do all of that. Skin to skin, developed by a doctor. We're actually going to save you money and, and give you a, a, a better quality product. So that became the story that we were talking about with the pharmacist. So now the pharmacist began to actually begin to promote the product rather than just asking the question, do you have it? So that was the next, that was the next step. It got to the point that we were selling quite well in those pharmacies, and Jean Couture called up one day and said, look, this is ridiculous. We can make a lot more together on this, on this brand. We want you to go up in the front shelf. Uh, Did you have to buy shelf space? Well, normally you would, but in this situation, because we had the success, we didn't have to. Uh, so we said, fine, give us three to four weeks to, to build up the kind of volume we want, because they were talking about 100 stores at that point, and now it's into 800, but at that point, 100 stores. So we, it took us about uh, three to six weeks to get the volume up, put it in the store, and now, now, we, now we had a, a place where we could be seen, and we could now talk to the cosmeticians, train them, and that became how we actually started to sell. How do you develop a price point? Is that your decision, Jean Coutu's decision, or any pharmacy? How did you come up with that price point? <laughs> well, back back when we first developed the line, Dr. Savest, we were talking about, hey, this is a great line. We've got peptides. We've got multiple peptides, high high levels of concentration, great product. Let's price it at 150 or 125. And Dr. Savest said, hey, look, this is Quebec. He said, yeah, it's true. We use a lot of cosmetics. But in reality, we got to keep this below 100 bucks if you have any chance of anybody uh, really buying the product. Once they like it and buy it, maybe, okay, but we've got to get them to try the product. So let, let's be reasonable, keep it under 100. Now, many people, many, perhaps any listeners say, hey, already 100 is a lot for an anti-aging cream, but given, given the, the, the competition that was often selling at 110, 120, we said, fine, well, we'll put it in in the, in the, in the low 90s, and that, that became our price point, and we kept it, and, we're, and we had enough margin that we... Uh, could, could handle the, uh, the ongoing advertising later on with, with Sean Couture. And you know, Dan, there's so many entrepreneurs that look at their product and say, what do I really sell it for? They're going into the retail market. Yes, they're guided a little bit by their customer, by the distributor, but where is the right price point? Where is the right price point that I'll make sure the volume goes out the door, but at least I can contribute to not only the bottom line, but the ongoing growth of the company. And that's always a very difficult uh, field and a few steps that, that entrepreneurs kind of have to be wary about, but they learn along the way. And I think as we come up, we'll learn a little bit about more the financial side of things. More with Roger Southern of Juviance in a moment. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Coming up to 7.34, welcome back to Today's Entrepreneur, presented by Fuller Landau, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. Dan Delmar here, along with Josh Miller of Fuller Landau. And our guest this evening is Roger Southern of Juviance. Uh, they make anti-aging creams. Josh, we're talking about growing pains, too, and, and especially making the transition to being really a niche product, being sold in, uh, in, in dermatologist offices, to really uh, making the jump to big pharmacies and, how, and the challenges that lie within that. And I was wondering, you know, as, as Roger was talking, he was saying, you know, they started with a few hundred jars and had to go to a few thousand. You know, as uh, I guess the accountant in me says, well, how did you manage that growth? Where did you go? Did you need financing? How did that work? So I guess, Roger, I'll turn right to you and say, how, how did you manage that growth from a, a finance standpoint? Well, the, the original, the, our, our original starting point uh, came because I had actually retired from Pfizer and then had rehired myself back as a consultant with Pfizer in Japan. So the revenues that I made over that two-year period of time became our, 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 our nest egg. That was what we started with. And uh, that was all right while we're still in the dermatology market, 35 derms and so on. 
Uh, but when we went to the next stage, when we were actually getting to the pharmacy, we had to sort of gross up to, uh, you know, between three and uh, as high as 5000 a month at that time. We needed to get out to different suppliers. So first thing we did was go looking for suppliers that could get us product uh, and get us components at a, at, a good, at a good price. Now we're getting serious about making sure our costs were as low as possible. And then we went looking, to, looking uh, at banks. And um, I'll give a little plug here to the Royal Bank. I'd always been with Royal Bank most of my life. And uh, so I went naturally to them first and saying, hey, uh, can I talk to, the, to the, uh, the side that deals with small businesses? They put me in touch with, uh, with the branch out on Coverture. And uh, they said, well, how much are you putting in? I said, I'm putting in this amount. They said, well, we can match that uh, with, with your assets and everything else. So I was online for, for my assets, obviously. Uh, but I said, God, I, 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 we believe in this. It's going to go. And it wasn't a, wasn't a, a big stretch. So we, uh, we just signed up. Uh, got a good good credit line, and, and off we went. And it's it, and we were able to handle that for quite a while. Was it a difficult sell to the bank? Did they did they understand the market? Did you have to like what did you have to provide to them? Did you was it you know certain cash flows, certain a business plan? Like was it very formal, or did they kind of understand and know you already it, and say you know what you have enough assets, we're covered, <laughs> and let's go? Well, they were, they they weren't too worried. I guess they were they felt that their money was pretty safe. But we had to go through the formality of the business plan, which was good. I mean. I do have an MBA, and I should have done a much stronger in-depth with all kinds of uh, diagrams and everything, projections on the back, and I, I didn't do that. I did a very basic business plan uh, covering us for maybe eh, maybe into three years, uh, and it was a very conservative one. I think that was probably my uh, good thing that I did because we were able to beat the business plan all the way through. Uh, I think that's, that's, that's one, one quick word of advice I can give is underestimate, don't overestimate. Uh, the banks are a lot happier when you're performing better than you than you uh, than you thought. Well, credibility plays a huge role, and in, with any entrepreneur, and I'm sure uh, everybody, every entrepreneur will tell you that when they're dealing with banks or dealing with any finance parties, if you under promise and over deliver, you can only look good in their eyes. Now, of course, you have to manage your business throughout and make sure that that's the right amount. But credibility uh, with the banks is is absolutely huge. So as as you're putting this plan together, Roger and selling it to the to the banks is it is it enough did you did you find did you ever look back and say you know i should have done something differently i I maybe could have been a little less conservative and grown the company a little more how did you wrestle with that yeah i think that we with hindsight what we could have done as we rolled out to more and more pharmacies in quebec we could have said hey let's ramp up our 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 product development side let's get let's take a look at where we want to go at this point we're probably at four different products we could have uh, we could have really ramped up that whole development side which would have taken a certain amount of financing but that would have moved everything a lot faster uh and since things were so successful at that point we probably would have uh, it probably would have been pretty low risk so we should have we could have gone in, bored a lot more, maybe even looked harder for a, for a, a minority investor and, and done things sooner. So now let's, let's fast forward a little bit. And you, you are this successful Quebec entrepreneur. You have this product that, that is moving off the shelf. Uh, somebody becomes interested in the company that created Jubiance. Tell us a little bit about that story and that what ended up being a marriage between two companies. Yeah, we had been approached by a, a you know, indirectly by a few other companies, and it just never never seemed to be serious enough to go to go very far. But last year, last January, I think it was January the eighth, actually, I had a phone call from a friend of ours who said, hey, "Listen, I'm on, I'm on the board of this uh, of another small Quebec company that is selling product everywhere except Quebec." 
and um, they're looking for a Quebec company that's selling in Quebec, and I'm just thinking this might be a, a very interesting marriage. Would you be interested in talking with them? So I said, well, why not? So we got together over coffee, uh, and then it just, it just progressed from there, I and mean, three months later, we got married. So it was uh, it developed fast, uh, because all the elements were in place to make it work. It was a, the blend, the synergy, overused word perhaps, but the synergy here really did work. Now, this is, now three months is really not a long time to, to start and finalize any merger. It, did everything go smoothly? Is there, what would you say the most important lessons you learned uh, in getting together with, uh, with this other company? Well, one of, uh, one of our friends uh, and a, very, a small minority sh- shareholder uh, is a retired lawyer. So thank God we had uh, access to inexpensive but quality law. <laughs> so, that, so that helped us out a lot from our side. On their side, uh, one of their principals is a lawyer, uh, actually a merger and acquisitions lawyer. So obviously he comes with an awful lot of experience. I think he li- worked in uh, in New York uh, during the good years for maybe seven or eight years. So comes with a strong M&A background. So we were probably a little bit outmatched in terms of uh, experience. But um, we, we, were just, we just plowed through it and worked it out. So it's a matter of compromise along the way. So the two lawyers actually agreed with each other. Not something you always hear when, uh, and certainly not <laughs> something that takes uh, such a short amount of time. Is there, now today, you, th- this merged company, you're, you're how many shareholder, how many partners, I guess, around the table? Well, I have three working partners, or two other working partners, and I believe we have about uh, seven, maybe eight uh, shareholders, most of whom are in the background. They're happy to see what we're doing uh, at regular shareholders' meetings, and they come and give us their comments. Uh, one of them is actually, uh, his company is, uh, is in the supply side. So some of the ingredients that we buy comes, comes from his company. So that helps us out quite a bit. Other ones are uh, investment bankers, uh, that kind of, that, uh, entrepreneurs. So give us a lot of good advice. How do you avoid the, the too many chiefs syndrome, uh, where you have too many people making decisions for the company? Well, uh, it, it, it definitely is a problem at times. Everybody's got a point of view. So how do we work that through? Uh, I hope it's not the loudest one that wins. I think we try to look for the uh, the most pragmatic uh, solution. Actually, I think in the long run, it, it, it's better for us because we before it was Nicole and I, Dr. Sylvester, so we weren't getting a lot of outside opinions. We were actually probably all thinking along the same lines. So now we get some, some people looking from, from outside in and saying, hey, what about doing it this way? What about cranking this up? What about spending over here? And doing things that, as a, I'm a natural conservative kind of guy, things that I would have thought were too brazen, a little bit too aggressive, and these ideas are, ideas are coming out and we're, we're, we're working through the pros and cons. So in a way, more people around the table is a good thing. Now, you have these number of people around the table, but you also have to protect yourselves or, or make sure that there's something in writing. And certainly with a couple of lawyers around the table, I would imagine that a shareholders agreement was an important step uh, in the, I guess, merger or marriage process. Uh, w- how would you describe or how would you, uh, I guess, elaborate on the shareholders agreement that you have and what it took to get there? I start by saying I just can't believe the amount of paper. <laughs> uh, two two small Quebec companies marrying, getting together. And the amount of paper 
that that's required both legally and by the shareholders is incredible. I, I had no idea what I was getting into from that side of it. And, and I, I consider myself to be fairly well-educated person. I mean, you, you've really got to be a lawyer to really understand all that's going on. So you, you, it's not something you want to do by yourself. You, you, take, you can't call your brother-in-law in and say, can you help me out on this? You've got you to get experts around the table. It's a lot of work. It's one thing to get the clauses ironed out, and that's where the lawyers go at it head-to-head, heart-to-heart. But we had we had an understanding from the very beginning. The, the synergies were so strong from the very beginning. Where there were disagreements, we both parties wanted to work it out. Well, that's great, and, and I, there's I'm sure there's a lot of lessons to be learned now. Just in the in the minute or so before we take our next break, perhaps you can tell us how did you find or how did you get connected with Veronique Cloutier? How did you have that marketing plan or or savoir faire to make sure and get her on board? Again, it goes back to, to not what you know, but who you know. So one of, one of my partners, Eric, uh, was on a beach uh, in Florida a couple of years ago, maybe not even a couple, maybe you say a year ago, uh, and uh, his, his children were playing with his other children on the beach, francophones, and um, he realized, looking at the, the mother, I, I think I know you. Are, are you Vernet Cloutier? She says, yeah. Okay, fine. What are you doing for dinner tonight? So the two, the two couples got together and they developed a relationship. So once we got into the whole thing with Juviance, Eric said, "Listen, uh, let's talk to Vero and see if see if we can get something going here." And it it happened. So a lot of the right time, right place, and and entrepreneurs, you know, it's you got to take any, you got to be opportunistic. And wherever you are, you're always kind of thinking you can take a break, you can be on vacation, but the mind always wanders, and that's something that entrepreneurs really get used to. And it's not even getting used to; it's just inbred. It's innate in there, still kind of thinking about the business. Something entrepreneurs do all the time. It's nice to also bump into one of Quebec's media empresses while on vacation. Uh, and coming up, we're going to talk about HR issues with Micheline Mayette from Fuller Landau and uh, get into pay equity rules uh, and some new rules that came down uh, from Quebec. So that'll be interesting. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 747, welcome back to today's Entrepreneur, inspiring stories from outstanding business people. Dan Delmar, along with Josh Miller of Fuller Landau. We have a Roger Southern in, he's from Jouviance, and we also bring in Michelle Mayette from Fuller Landau, HR specialist, to talk about uh, pay equity issues, Josh. And although the pay equity is not a new rule, it's certainly a lot of people don't know about it, I guess. And a lot of people think it's very gender-oriented, but, you know, Michelin's here to kind of uh, demystify what pay equity is and certainly elaborate on the challenges for entrepreneurs. So, Michelin, welcome back to the program. Thank you. And uh, maybe you can, you can give us a little bit, uh, I don't know, history or background or explanation. What exactly is pay equity? What should entrepreneurs be aware of? Okay. Well, pay equity, a lot of people think it's something new, but actually it's been around for quite a while now, so since the 1996. And... Companies who were active as of 1996 actually were supposed to have done this for November 21st, 2001. So a lot of companies are very behind, I guess, if you want to say it that way, on, on getting this done. But is the government enforcing anything with this? I mean, it's, it's self it's you kind of yourself, you have to self-assess, if you will. Yes, it is a self-assessment. However, there was recent changes to the law. And so today, companies actually have to do an annual declaration. So the first time around, a lot of companies didn't do it. I think even more than 50% of companies didn't comply with pay equity, and nothing really happened. So there wasn't really any motivation, I guess, to go ahead. Uh, they revised the law, I believe it was in 2008. And so they 
they made it a bit more specific in terms of what companies actually have to do. And they gave companies a new deadline. So they had until December 31st, 2010 to get it done this time around. But if you had pay adjustments, then they had to be retroactive to 2001 if that was the case. So now, now you're talking about retroactive adjustments. Are you saying that there's... Uh, what exactly does a company, what does an entrepreneur have to do? What are the steps that he has to take to figure out if he's paying all his employees doing the, the same job, the same pay? I'll talk maybe a little bit what pay equity is, because there's a lot of misconception around what this actually means. Pay equity is not paying your male accountant the same as your female accountant. Pay equity is not paying the market value. I've got a lot of companies that call me and say, well, I pay my, my women employees very, very well or the same as their male colleagues, so I don't have to do this. But that's really not the case at all. You still have to do it. It's comparing positions that are predominantly female within your company to other positions that are predominantly male. Now, the reason this was put in place in the first place was um, the idea behind it is that there's a lot of positions that are predominantly female that have been systematically underpaid because they were predominantly female. This is historically. You can think of some positions like daycare workers, uh, nurses, uh, teachers, you know, that, that people generally considered that they may have been underpaid, especially in the past. Um, if you look, a daycare worker, for example, typically makes less than a zookeeper. <laughs> which is probably predominantly male. So, Even I mean, though they both deal with animals. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, okay, you could say the zookeeper is probably a more dangerous position, but still, you know, somebody taking care of animals versus children. Now, it's probably very rare that you have a company that has both zookeepers and daycare workers. So you have to think that this actually applies within your company. So what you have to do is go through all the positions in your company, determine which are predominantly male and female, and then compare the two. Now, it's the comparison part that it becomes a little bit complicated. You actually have to give a point value to each of these positions within your company. Does it start, what does it start with, maybe a job description? I mean, do you have to figure out exactly what are the tasks within each position and yeah, kind of go need, from there? Yes, you need to have a job description and even the commission um, strongly recommends that companies consult the employees in the different positions while creating this job description. So there's even a questionnaire that they want you to give employees so that you've consulted them. Because you may forget when you're evaluating your file clerk, for example, that this person has to lift heavy boxes of files all day. And you know, for you, it's maybe an office job because they're sitting in front of the computer for 90% of the day. So they want you to consult the employees to really have a good idea of what it is that they do. So there's four factors that uh, they want you to use. So one of them is the prerequisites for the position. So you can think of education, experience, need, computer skills, et cetera. There's the responsibility of the position. So you could think of uh, supervisory, uh, communication, uh, autonomy, and so on. Uh, then there's the effort required for the position. So physical effort, mental effort, concentration are some of the, the things that you'll consider. And then there's the environment in which the work is conducted. So you could have the physical environment. So is it cold? Uh, you know, is it hot? You know. And the psychological environment, are they working with people who are dying? Are they customer service reps getting yelled at all day? Um, and the risk of accidents. It sounds like there's a really a lot of factors to consider 
and uh, and you can't just take one. It's really a number of them. And I and when we come back from the break, I I think there's also some differences between size of companies because if you only have a few employees versus you have 103 employees, there might be some some different rules uh, and different actions to follow as well. And we'll we'll come back with Michelin about that uh, right after the break. Also coming up on Today's Entrepreneur, Roger Southern's uh, one piece of advice for Today's Entrepreneur. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Remaining minutes of Today's Entrepreneur presented by Fuller Landau, our guest this evening, Roger Southern of Jouviance, and talking HR issues, pay equity in specific, Michelin Mayette of Fuller Landau. And Michelin, we're talking about uh, these pay equity rules, the government's starting to get a bit more um, serious about them, and uh, certainly there's a lot of confusion. What types of businesses do, do, do these pay equity uh, rules apply to, or does it apply to everyone? Uh, well, pay equity applies to any company who has 10 employers or more. Um, now, there's a certain reference period you have to use, and that really depends on when the company was active and so on. So each company should really look into the specifics as to what their own obligations are. Uh, any company with six employees or more has to complete this annual declaration of the Pay Equity Commission, even if you know they, it ends up that they don't have to do it. They still have to complete the declaration. Now, past 10 employees, there are some differences over... 100 employees, you have to have a pay equity committee, and the committee is composed of both employees and representatives of the employer. And in all cases, there's postings that you have to do. Now, if you're over 50 employees, there's you know multiple postings, whereas if you're under 50, there's only one. So yes, there are differences depending on, on the size of the company. Full-time, part-time, does it matter? Uh, no, it doesn't matter. And it, do you need comparable positions? Like, where where is the starting point? Where do you figure out that, hey, you have a big job to do versus, you know, entrepreneur, well, I shouldn't worry about that because, you know, I really, I, I employ 99% women, for example, and I don't really have to be as concerned. Yeah, it is very, it's a complicated process. So it is difficult. A lot of the companies that I've spoken to who've, you know, tried to get it started on their own, they do find it complicated. Uh, the Pay Equity Commission put out um, a software the companies can use to do it themselves. I know a lot of companies still have trouble using that, but it is available if companies uh, want to use it. Uh, but I mean, the general idea behind it is comparing, let's say, this is a very simplified example, but your receptionist to your warehouse worker. So all of your predominantly male positions and all of your predominantly female positions, um, you have to basically assign a point value to all of them. So if you determine that your receptionist is worth 100 points and your warehouse worker is worth 100 points, then the receptionist cannot make less than the warehouse worker does. Now, with all this work, I mean, it's great to talk about it. It's great to have it. But I presume there's a certain amount of documentation that you have to maintain. Yes, there's a lot of documentation that you have to maintain. Because <laughs> so at the end yeah. of the day, whoever walks through the door, if there's actually a government office that's going to walk in and enforce it, they're going to want to see, hey, how did you get to this conclusion? So what's the type of, of paperwork or documentation that should be kept on record? Well, you have to show how the positions were evaluated, um, obviously the salaries for the employees, all the employees that were employed at that point in time how you calculated your adjustments, uh, copies of all the postings that you posted for the employees for future reference. And all documents have to be kept for a period of five years. 
Wow, I mean, it, it really, it's, it sounds a little complicated. At, at the very least, it's quite tedious, uh, certainly if you have a, quite, a number, uh, quite a number of employees out there and comparable job positions. So I would imagine that uh, anybody out there that's, that's looking to do it, you, mu- you might need some help doing it. Uh, certainly certainly uh, engage some help uh, if you have to, entrepreneurs. And as we come down to the remaining minutes of the show, Dan, uh, and you know, I'm sure Roger is sitting there and he has about a dozen different pieces of advice he'd like to, like to offer for entrepreneurs, but uh, Roger, if I may ask, uh, what maybe one or two pieces of advice would you offer to today's entrepreneur? Well, yeah, I have been thinking about that, and there are quite a few, but I I would say, looking back, it's that reward-risk decision, and uh, if I was starting all over again, I would definitely use more risk. Uh, Take take a few more risks, and and it gets back to that, it feels good, that gut feel. Uh, Go go with it. So, uh, yeah, if, if it feels good, bit risky, but I think the potential is there. Go for it. Thank you. And, and Dan, just to, to comment on that and the takeaway I get from today's show, and part of it is the risk and part of it is balancing what, you know, your conservative side with your risky side. The entrepreneur tends to operate a lot with their with their gut and their a little bit with their emotion. And that's what they run with. And that's what the instincts that they have to trust. That is, that is certainly part of it. Uh, the other thing I, I would add is you got to know the right time and right place. You got to know when to start and the people that surround you. You got to be opportunistic. In Juviance's case, it was about getting to know or knowing the right to start with that idea and running with that. At the, you know, about a year or so ago, they were opportunistic with their spokesperson, Veronique Cloutier, who is a phenomenal asset to that company. So I think being opportunistic and, and realizing that it doesn't always rest in today's efforts but uh, and tomorrow's efforts and yesterday's but you just got to always look around and keep your eyes and ears wide open and that's what makes today's entrepreneur roger southern of juviance thanks very much and Thank a thanks as well to michelin mayette uh talking pay equity and hr issues from Florlando. thanks michelin and uh, josh will be back here in two weeks from now off on easter back on april 16th you can reach Florlando during business hours at 514-875-2865 or visit www.flmontreal.com. This is News Talk Radio, CJAD 800.